Thank you. Please uh, take your Bibles this morning and turn to number uh, first. Uh, excuse me. Turn to a <laughs> number. Turn to First Samuel six, please. First Samuel six. I I uh, can't really describe how much I miss this church when uh, I'm gone. Sundays, uh, it's it's one of those things. My my, I was with my family in Colorado, and they told me, "Wow, you know, you get to sit with your family, and you get to be." Be, you get to listen to a sermon, and that is a true joy. I, I, I love sitting with my family, something that I don't get to do very often. But um, at the same time, I, I, uh, I miss this church, and I miss getting up here and being able to preach, so I'm so thankful to be back. And I heard that things went well last week. I'm thankful for Brother Stephen and his ministry. Uh, it was very, uh, very good of him to, to come up and, and to minister, and uh, I was thankful for his flexibility and uh, glad to be back. First Samuel 6, the title of the message, Holiness Doesn't Play Favorites. Holiness Doesn't Play Favorites. You remember last time we were together, this was two weeks ago, last time we were together, uh, we spent time considering the exclusivity of God and the holiness of God, that there is no God but God. And then we added to that as we finished off um, our sermon, and Jesus is His name. And we recognize that God is exclusive, that God is holy, that, that we can't just give anything the label of God, but that God is reflected in this book. And that if the God that we are looking at or thinking about or worshiping is not the God of this book, then He's not God. And that Jesus Christ called Himself God. And that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life in John fourteen six, And that no man cometh unto God the Father but by me. And so if we are not going to God the Father through Christ, then we are not getting to God the Father. And this is what the Bible teaches us. And so we saw that exclusivity, but, but as we, we were thinking about this, we were painting it in the context of 1 Samuel chapter 5. And you remember, uh, we were there last time, the Philistines had conquered Israel and had taken the Ark of the Covenant back to their land. And they sought to subject the name, subject the honor of Jehovah God to the power of their false god, Dagon. And what we saw is God vindicating His own holiness among these pagan people. And He did so in a very definitive way, did He not? The people took the ark and they set it before the god Dagon. And in the morning when they woke up, that god had fallen on His face before the ark. And then they put Him back up and the next morning they come again and not only was Dagon on his face, but his head was cut off and his hands were cut off. And the people started realizing that there's something going on here, that this God is a little bit bigger than their God, that this God is a little bit more powerful than their God. And then the plague started. And they started getting emeralds. And, they start, and people started dying. And they said, this isn't going to work for us. So they took the ark and they said, here, next city, you have the ark. And they sent it to another city in Philistia. Here, you can have the ark. You can gloat over, over this God for a while. And the same thing happened there. They got the plague. People started dying. It was not a good thing. And so we left last week at the end of 1 Samuel 5 with the people deciding this ark has got to go. This ark can no longer stay in our land. And now they're going to decide exactly how to go about this. See, what we're going to see this week is that God's holiness doesn't play favorites. Remember, now we, we think about the Philistines and what they were doing, but remember what happened before the ark was lost. 
Remember the, the, the circumstances that brought the ark to a place of vulnerability. Israel decided that they didn't really need God's help. What they needed was the ark's help. They had replaced Jehovah God with a box. And they thought that this box was going to save them. At best, they thought that God was going to bless them because of the box. At worst, they literally thought that the ark itself had some sort of power to save them. That was three weeks ago that we, we preached that one in 1 Samuel 4. And so they got very superstitious and already they had spurned the holiness of God by replacing His power with this superstitious belief in, in the power of the ark itself. And so we see that, that God was not going to give them a pass on their wickedness. In fact, we saw that 30,000 people died in the battle where the ark was there and the ark was taken. Now, God's holiness was vindicated among the Philistines. He began to smite them. But what we will see is that, that God's holiness is not just something that we need to preach to the unbeliever. That God's holiness doesn't just apply to the pagan false God worshiper, but that we as God's people need to remember that God is holy as well. And not only that, but we as God's people ought to have, in fact, a greater understanding and appreciation for the holiness of God. And a greater, if I can use this word, we'll talk about it a little more as we go through the sermon, fear of God in our actions, in our walk, in our thought processes, in what we do and don't do. Because, in fact, we know more of who the Bible is. And that's what we find. We find as we study the Word of God, as we live our lives, that the same principle of holiness applies to us as Christians. That just because we are a child of God, that we are born again into the family of God, this does not exempt us from needing to regard God's holiness and the consequences of disesteeming God's holiness. Now, our redemption is secure if we're a believer in this room. We have been saved from the eternal penalty of sin, that is the fires of hell. But that doesn't exempt us from consequences for disesteeming the holiness of God. And my prayer today is that we would see this. Now, now in theory, this is obvious. We all know that God is holy. But it's my prayer that we would esteem God to be holy today that we would live in a manner that is consistent with the demands of a holy God. That we would not just know that God is holy, but that we by faith would appropriate an understanding of God's holiness into how we live our lives. So let's walk through 1 Samuel 6 today. We'll learn some principles about God's holiness. We'll learn about some consequences for spurning it. And then we'll apply these things to our lives. 1 Samuel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, the Scriptures say this, and The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do to the ark of the Lord? Tell us wherewith we shall send it to His place. And they said, If ye send away the ark of the God of Israel, send it not empty, but in any wise return Him a trespass offering. Then ye shall be healed, and it shall be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. We'll stop there and we'll just start walking through this verse by verse. In verse 1 it says, The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. As we learn about the events of the plague that transpired in chapter 5, the narrative nature of the events gives us a feeling that they occurred in very quick 
sequence that uh, because we know that that they put the ark in front of Dagon and one night he fell over the next night his head and hands were cut off we, we are beginning to think that maybe all of this happened very very quickly but we find in chapter 6 verse 1 that this was indeed a seven month process of this plague uh, plaguing the Philistines before they were ready to truly give up the ark and you know sometimes we find that the judgment of God doesn't always work swiftly it's not always that lightning from heaven or fire from heaven experience that you might see in the cartoons where someone displeases God and a, a bolt of lightning comes down. There, there are times where, where God's judgment isn't like fire from heaven as much as it might be, say, fire heating up a pot. That it's something that is getting warmer and warmer and warmer. And all of that time of, of we might say, that the judgment of God building up, um, God is merciful and God is long-suffering and God is giving time time for repentance and then the judgment gets worse as people ignore it as people refuse it as as the clear signs of God's judgment are rejected and such was the case in these two cities of Philistia that we looked at last week Ashdod and Ekron an average of three and a half months in each of these cities watching as the ark is brought into the city and then as we'll see today mice came and then the mice brought a plague with them. And people began to, to, to writhe in pain over this plague. And then finally, people began to die in each place where the ark resided. And after seven months of suffering, the Philistines were just ready for this ark to be gone. So verse 2 tells us that the Lord calls for the priests and the diviners, the spiritual representatives of their false god, Dagon, and of their false religious system. But... Though these men were, were false priests, they weren't priests of the true and living God, make no mistake, they understood the spiritual realm. And we see this. This is, is very similar today as well. There are plenty of people that do not serve Jehovah God, that are not followers of Jesus Christ, but make no mistake, many of them still understand the spirit world. They still understand the power, and many of them are seeking to tap into the power of Satan and his minions. And so the, the fact that they understood the spirit realm should not tell us that they, that they were followers of God or, or, or believed in God or loved God, but they, they understood God's power. And they knew how to interact with this realm. Now, it's interesting to note that in this verse, the, the people ask this, the lords of the Philistines ask these priests and diviners, what shall we do to the ark of the Lord? And you see there, if, you're, if you've got a King James Version, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord. Now, when you see this in your King James Version, the, the translators were very consistent. Every time you see all caps Lord in the King James Bible, the word behind it or the name behind it is Jehovah, or if, if you go that direction, Yahweh, depending on um, the Hebrew that you're using, is that word Jehovah, Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Uh, th there's no other name behind that word when it's all in caps. And so the lords of the Philistines just called God Jehovah. And this is the first time that we see in our Bibles where the Philistines actually called him Jehovah. And this was a, a, the covenant name that God gave to Israel. This is the first time that they're actually recognizing him by his name. And this is interesting because look in verse 3. Now, the diviners say this, if he send away the ark of the God of Israel, the diviners and the priests won't use his name. But the Lord's got to the point where they were finally willing to recognize him for who he was. 
that this is a God above gods. Before that, if you look in chapter 4, if you look in chapter 5, if you, if you look at all the other interaction with the Philistines, even the lords call him the God of Israel. They don't call him Jehovah, but here, these lords have been brought to their knees. And they say, what should we do with the ark of the Lord? Uh, with the ark of Jehovah God, with the ark of this God that is clearly greater, this God that is clearly more powerful, we need this thing gone. Now, by this point, they had already decided to get the ark out of their land, to get it back to Israel. But the question that they were asking the priests is, what manner sh- in what manner should we send it back? How should we, how should we send this thing back? Their interest wasn't so much getting rid of the ark. Their interest was getting rid of the plague. So if they were to send the ark back and they were to do it in their mind in the wrong way so that God was not pleased, well, if it didn't get rid of the plague, then sending the ark back would do nothing for them. So they go to their priests, they go to their diviners and say, we need this plague gone. We'll get rid of the ark, we'll send it back. How should we do it to make sure that this plague goes away? And that's what we see in verse 3. The priests and the diviners answer that if they are going to send it away, and they are, they should not send it away empty. They should not send it without some offering to God to seek to pacify his wrath. And they say in doing so, not only would they pacify the wrath of God, but they would also have a chance to validate that it was indeed God that was doing the plaguing, that it was the fact that the the ark was among them. They were still, the priests and diviners were still skeptical. Maybe this was just the nature of them not wanting to lose spiritual control of their people but they were not willing to fully admit that God was behind it. Maybe it was just a coincidence that everywhere this ark went, there was a plague and people started dying. Maybe, it, maybe it's not the power of an all-powerful God. Maybe we shouldn't start calling him Jehovah just yet. Maybe we should still call him the God of Israel. Maybe we should, we should still regard this as just a coincidence. So they weren't ready to go there yet, but they say this. Basically, uh, if, if, if we want to appease this God, we'll send back the ark. We'll make every effort to do so. We'll send an offering with it. This should be a trespass offering to tell this God that we recognize that we did something wrong. And we'll just do everything that we can to make sure that we pacify this God. Kind of like a shotgun effect. We're just going to do as much as we can. We'll send back the trespass offering. We'll send back the ark. We'll do everything we can to make sure that, God is, that this God is happy with us and that he's okay. And in verse 4, we see what this should be. Then said they, What shall be the trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden emeralds and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for one plague was on you all and on your lord. So these priests say, send back uh, five likenesses of the boils that were on you and then five likenesses of mice. So each lord and each of their capital cities would be represented by one mouse and one emerald, showing that we recognize both the mice and the boils to be from you, God, that you sent these. And, and so we, each of the five lords of the Philistines is humbling ourselves before the God of Israel, Jehovah God, and admitting that this is from you, that we know it's from you, and that we're, we're recognizing this. And that, that was to be the manner of the trespass that the priests and the diviners recommended. Verse 5, Wherefore ye shall make images of your emeralds and images of your mice, that mar the land, and ye shall give glory unto the God of Israel. They still won't call him Jehovah. Peradventure, he will lighten his hand from off you, and from off your gods, and from off your land. So that's the intent. 
that by making these images of the emeralds, by making the images of the mice, by sending them away with the ark, the lords of the Philistines admit that they recognize God's a part of it, humble themselves before him and petition him for mercy. Notice verse 6. The priests and the diviners say this, Wherefore then do ye harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he had wrought wonderfully among them? Did they not let the people go and they departed? The priests warned them. This is fascinating. Warned them not to harden their hearts against God the same way that Egypt and Pharaoh hardened their hearts and suffered the consequences of doing so. Do you know what they're talking about here? The Exodus. Hundreds of years after Israel has left the, the land of Egypt. And this is the second reference. We saw another one in 1 Samuel 4. The second reference that the Philistines made to the Exodus and to what God did to Egypt in the Exodus. Hundreds of years later, the Philistines are still afraid of the power of the God that destroyed the great land of Egypt. They're still afraid of the power of the God who put ten plagues against Egypt because they kept hardening their hearts against God. And so these diviners say, don't do that. Don't harden your hearts against God the same way Pharaoh did the same way the Egyptians did. Because we know full well what happened to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They were completely destroyed. They, they were, the, all of their fields were destroyed. All of their cattle were killed. The firstborn, of every, firstborn son of every family was killed. And their entire military might was destroyed in the Red Sea. All because they hardened their hearts against God. So, so the Philistine advisors say, let's not do that. Let's just humble ourselves before God. Let's get this over with. Let's get this ark away so that we can get back to our lives. Hundreds of years later, and the Philistines still fear the testimony of God in those days. And so they say in verse 7, Now therefore, make a new cart. Take two milch kine on which there hath come no yoke and tie the kine to the cart and bring their calves home from them. Now, so they've talked about sending the ark back. They talked about making the five emeralds and the, and the five mice. And now they say, get a, get, uh, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more in a moment, but, but get a new cart and place it on this new cart. We'll explain why all of this is happening in a moment. Verse eight, and take the ark of the Lord and lay it upon the cart and put the jewels of gold, which ye return him for a trespass offering in a coffer by the side thereof and send it away that it may go. So have a cart, have the oxen, put the ark on the cart, put the offering on a box beside it, and send it away. And verse 9 says, And see, here's the test. If it goeth up by the way of his own coast to Beth Shemesh, then he hath done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that smote us. It was a chance that happened to us. So here's what they were supposed to do. Now, a milch kind is a cow that was producing milk. So these would be female cows. And if it's producing milk, cows only produce milk for a certain number of months after they have a calf. So we know that they would have young calves. And they were to take these milch kind and they were to, and, and these, these, 
these, and, and those would be cows, and they've never pulled anything before. So it's not like they would have in their minds or in their muscle memory some direction to go in already. They would have been completely directionless as far as how to pull a cart, how to walk in sequence together, all of those things that you would need to take time to get cows used to, they wouldn't have any of that. And not only that, they say, but let's make it really hard on these cows. We're going to take these cows, we're going to hitch them up to this new cart, we're going to put, put the ark on the cart, we're going to put the offering on the side, and then we're going to take their calves and we're going to move them back behind them to the city. Now, if you take two mother cows and they've never pulled a cart before and you take their calves and you move them back to the city, what would you expect those cows to do? They'd turn right around and they'd go back to their calves. I mean, this is what a cow would do. This is, this is what these mother cows would do. So the Philistines are making it as impossible as possible for the cows to go to Israel. They're making it as unlikely as possible, we can put it that way, that these cows would ever go to Israel. And this is their test. If these cows go straight to Israel, we know that God's involved here. We know that the God of Israel is the one involved here. If these cows don't, if they go back to their calves, if they wander around, if they can't get in sequence, if, if they get nowhere or if they wander in some other direction, then we know that this is just all a bunch of big coincidence and, and you know, we'll just have to get through this plague like we get through other things as well. And so that's the big test here. This is the root of skepticism that they're dealing with. The cows had every possible natural reason not to go to Israel. And so if they did, it must be of God. Actually, a pretty clever plan you know, for a bunch of pagans to test, to test if, if it's God or not. Pretty thorough, pretty clever. So they do it. Verse 12. The kind took the straight way, the way of Beth Shemesh, and went along the highway, lowing as they went, turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them unto the border of Beth Shemesh. In verses 10 through 12, we see that this is exactly what happened. They made, it's, it's more review of, of them doing what they were told to do. They made the emeralds, they made the mice, they got the milch kind, they put it on the, the new cart, they put the ark on the new cart, they removed the calves, they let the kind go, and they load all the way to Israel. They went directly there. They followed them, it says, all the way to the very border of this city, Beth Shemesh. In verses 13 to 18, we see a description of what the Philistines observed when the ark made it to the city of Beth Shemesh. What they were looking at. They, they went to the border. They were kind of perhaps peeking from behind trees or over a hill or whatever the case may be. But they don't go into Beth Shemesh. They, they don't want to do that, getting into Israel territory. But they're peeking. They're watching. What's this cart going to do now that it's here? Now recall, it's been seven months since the ark has been taken. And the scriptures tell us that when the people saw the ark, they greatly rejoiced. They greatly rejoiced. I apologize, verse 13, I think, um, is not the right verse there. So you'll have to look in your Bible there. Um, verse 13 says, And they of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. And the cart came into the field of Joshua, a Beth Shemite, and stood there where there was a great stone. And they clave the wood of the cart and offered the kind a burnt offering unto the Lord. 
And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the coffer that was with it, wherein the jewels of gold were, and put them on the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifices, excuse me, and sacrificed sacrifices the same day unto the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. We'll pick up there in just a moment. So the people see the ark. They rejoice greatly over the ark. The ark enters into the field of a man named Joshua. The Levites take the ark and they put it on a great stone. They take the coffer that had the golden emeralds and the golden mice. They put that on the stone as well. And we will find in verse 18 that the stone's name is Abel, which means meadow. And it's a stone that they never moved from that day forward. And it said, the scriptures say that they broke the cart of wood. They broke it into pieces and they used the cart of wood as the foundation of fire. And then they sacrificed those two oxen that brought the ark on over that fire unto the Lord. The Philistines observed all this. They went back to Ekron and they were indeed convinced that God had been the one behind the plague. And I draw your attention to verse 18 where we see what has been called a contradiction in the text. Back in verse 4, we saw the priests recommend, if you recall, that the lords of the Philistines make five golden emeralds and five gold mice, one for each of the capital cities and one for each of the lords of the Philistines. But here in verse 18, notice what it says. <coughs> Excuse me. In the golden mice, <coughs> according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both of fenced cities and of country villages, even unto the great stone of Abel, whereupon they set down the ark of the Lord, which stone remaineth unto this day in the field of Joshua, the Beth Shemite. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verse 17 tells us that the emeralds, there were only five of them made. But in verse 18, we see that there were far more than just five mice made. In fact, there was one mouse, golden mouse, made for every city and every village in Philistia. So we're, we're talking a whole lot more than just five uh, cities, a whole lot more than just five mice made. And as I was reading up, there were many people that said, well, we have a contradiction in the text here. And many people say that, that the, the five earlier in verse four is not supposed to be there. And that's just, that was added later. That's scribal error. The problem is that we believe that the Bible is inspired and preserved. And so if the Bible is indeed inspired by God and it has been preserved for us, then we would um, take issue with the idea that God has allowed people to, to just add and take away from his word without preserving it for us in this generation. And as we, we think about the text here, we actually see no contradiction. The priests in verse 4 said, this is what you should do. Make five emeralds of gold, make five mice of gold. This is what you should do. The scriptures never tell us that that's exactly what they did. In fact, what it seems to me is that the priest said, make five of these, make five of these. And the Lord said, you know what? That's not enough. We only have the plagues in, in the major cities, but the mice are everywhere. So we need to make a mouse for every city. And so they went above and beyond what the priest suggested. And they made a mouse for every city and every village. This is not contradictory. For the Bible never tells us they only made five mice. The Bible simply says the priests only suggested five mice. In fact, what the Bible tells us in verse 18 is that they made many more. Not a contradiction in our text at all. And so we don't need to start apologizing 
for, pre for presumed contradictions and apologizing for the text. Uh, we can trust that the Word of God is, is inspired. We can trust that the Word of God is preserved. And when we approach the Word of God, if we see a problem between our understanding and the Word of God, that's the problem. Our understanding, not the Word of God. What a shame it is that many Christians have yielded that hill and are willing to, to admit errors in the Word of God as if God was not powerful enough to preserve His Word for us. Verse 19 tells us something interesting. The joy in Beth Shemesh is quite short-lived. Verse 19 tells us that the men of Beth Shemesh attempted to look into the Ark of the Covenant. And the Scriptures say that He smote the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked into the Ark. Notice what it says. Even he smote of the people 50,000 and threescore and ten men. And the people lamented because the Lord had smitten many of the people with a great slaughter. According to our King James Bible, 50,000, threescore would be 60 and ten. 50,000 and 70 men were killed in, when they opened the ark. Perhaps as we think about this action, we have trouble understanding it. The ark has come back from Felicia of its own accord. The significance of the ark, however, is not in the ark itself, is it? It's in its contents. According to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4, the ark of the covenant contained two tablets with the Ten Commandments, contained a rod of Aaron that budded in the controversy with Korah, and contained an omer of manna as a testimony of how God fed the people in the wilderness. It's likely that the people wanted to see perhaps if the Philistines had removed anything, or maybe it just was that uh, they were simply curious. I wonder, I wonder if, if the manna is still good in that ark. I wonder if that, that rod, if it's uh, rotted yet, or, or, or if it's still good. So perhaps they were just curious. Either way, they opened the ark and the King James Bible tells us 50,070 people died on that day. Now here we have a translational discrepancy that we need to bring up. I, I mentioned before that the Word of God is trustworthy. The Hebrew text that, that has been preserved for us tells us that there were five emeralds suggested and more than five made. We believe that to be preserved by God in the original Hebrew text. However, we do not necessarily believe that everything that the King James Bible says is properly translated. Our loyalty is to the original Greek and the original Hebrew. It's not necessarily to the translation itself. And here we have a discrepancy that is not as easily explainable the way the King James translates it. it it's possible, but it's not um, uh, 100% certain that the King James has the right translation here. The original Hebrew text reads this way. God smote 50 men, 50, or excuse me, 50 men, 50, or 60 men, 50,000 men, 10 men. So the idea of, of uh, a 70 and then uh, a 50,000. Now many have a hard time understanding this. Beth Shemesh was a very small village. It would not have had anywhere near 50,000 people. Josephus in his history claims that only 70 men died there that 50 men died for every 1,000 men present, as it were, meaning that 70 men died from a total of 1,400 men that were there, that there were 1,400 men in the city and only 70 died. Uh, and, and that's possible. The text could mean 50 and 20 and 10, 70 men 
died. But the problem is this word 50,000 is still in there. And, and there's not a really good explanation for that. I'm willing to admit that, that the King James may have gotten it wrong, but it, it, it's not necessarily impossible that the translation is right here. If you read the Hebrew just at face value, if, if we weren't thinking of, of the number of men in the context of one small city, then 50,000 would, would make sense. I mean, 30,000 people died in the battle where the ark was lost. So is it not possible that Beth Shemesh, having found the ark, announcing to Israel that the ark was there, that many people would have gathered together to rejoice over the ark? And perhaps there could have been as, as many as 50,000 men there to rejoice over the ark having been found. And then perhaps once everybody had gathered together, then they said, let's open it up and see what's inside. And that 50,000 and 70 men could have died. So it's, it's not unfounded to think that, that it could be there. And it's not a bad translation in the King James. But, but if you look in other Bibles, you'll see probably something like 70 men. And that's possible as well. That, that it was, it was a 70 man just based upon how the Hebrew breaks up the word. So it wouldn't be the first time that um, we found something in our King James where it could be translated differently. But certainly we can recognize that the Bible is inspired and preserved and, and whatever the original Hebrew means, it, it, God has a meaning for it. And it's our responsibility and privilege to find that meaning. Coming out of the academic, let's get back into the text. Verses 20 and 21 as we finish up here. The men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall he go up from us? And they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought again the ark of the Lord. Come ye down and fetch it up to you. We finish the chapter with these verses. And as we apply our text today, it is verse 20 that I would like us to dwell upon. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall he go up from us? Two weeks ago, in 1 Samuel 5, we saw the holiness of God and his wrath upon the false gods of the unbelieving cities of the Philistines. But what we need to see is that his wrath was just as strong upon the faithless actions of his own people as it was upon the faithless actions of a pagan people. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the Bible tells us this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 tells us this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. We could spend a significant amount of time going from passage to passage, learning the importance of this concept of fearing God. There are dozens of verses that teach us the truth that those who serve God ought to fear God as well. We see from Psalm chapter 2, verse 11, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. We see from Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. But what does it mean? What does it mean to fear God? After all, when I think of fear, 
the things that I fear, I stay away from. The things that I fear, I'm not, not interested in. We just got back from a, from a trip to Colorado and my daughters went to a butterfly pavilion. And they were terrified of those butterflies. And they didn't want to be anywhere near those butterflies. Ironically, there was a tarantula that you could hold and they held the tarantula, no problem there. <laughs> big old thing. I mean, I mean, it'd be big in my hand. They held that, no problem. But those butterflies, they were terrified. And so they were happy to hold out their hand for the spider because the spider didn't, didn't scare them. But, but the butterflies, they were not interested in touching because <laughs> they're kind of scary. And so when we think of the concept of fear, we think of avoid that which we fear. Uh, d- don't think about that which we fear. But that's not the idea of fearing God. The idea of fear, and, and this is how it's used in, in, in the King James, and if you were look, to look up the word in a dictionary keyed into the King James, such as the Webster's 1828, you'd find that the word fear means to respect, to revere, to show reverence unto. And that's the idea of what it means to have a fear of God or to fear God. It means to respect God's power. It means to respect God's omniscience, omnipotence, those words that we we talked about earlier. It means to love what God loves, to hate what God hates, to reject that which God rejects, to accept that which God accepts, lest we find ourselves working against God. And that's where we don't want to be. And that's what it means to fear God, to fear a circumstance in our lives where we are going the opposite direction that God is going and the consequences that that could bring into our lives. God hates evil. And if we fear God, then we'll hate evil too. God hates pride. And since we fear God, we hate pride too. It doesn't inherently mean we're afraid of God, but simply that we have a healthy respect for God's power, an understanding of God's wrath, and here it is, a respect for God's holiness. We might liken this to how we act around police officers. I fear a police officer, but I'm not afraid of a police officer. I have a healthy respect for his authority, for his capability, for his training. I don't want to be on the wrong side of his training. I don't want to be on the wrong side of his authority because I know that being on the wrong side of his training and authority would make my life much worse than it is today. But when I see a police officer, I don't feel compelled to run and hide. I will smile. I'll talk with him. I'll act like normal because though I, have, I, I know his authority, I'm on his side. I'm, I'm right with him. And so I don't have to be afraid of him, though I still recognize the authority he has. I'm not afraid of him, but I fear him. The same idea exists with God only to an infinitely greater degree. Now, many would say that we no no longer need to fear God because all of the the fear of God was placed on Jesus on the cross, that the fear of God died with Jesus, that God is now a God of total grace and love and the concept of holy fear should not compel a believer. But notice what Paul tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. And we're actually going to read through verse 29. You can follow along with me on the screen. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest. He's talking about Mount Sinai when it burned with fire as the, as the Ten Commandments were being given. He says, you're not there. And the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words, which voice that, 
uh, they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But ye, you are come unto Mount Zion, or Zion, Jerusalem, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Isn't grace a beautiful thing? That speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse... But look at this. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. He may be speaking kindly today, but he's still not one to be refused. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be, re be moved, let us have grace, hold grace, take hold of grace is what that means, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. So Paul tells, uh, this is a long passage, it would be nice, if we'll, we'll preach through Hebrews one day. Uh, when I get the courage to do it. Uh, Paul tells the readers that we aren't like the Old Testament believers who saw the flames of God burning on Mount Sinai and heard the voice of God speaking. So terrifying was it that the people literally said, Moses, never, ever let God speak to us again. Let God speak to you. You speak to us. We never want to hear his voice again. If we do, we fear we'll die. They were so terrified of the holiness of God, of the fire and of the earth shaking and the sound of his voice. We're not there. We have access to God. We can approach the mount and we're not going to die. We, we have access directly into the throne of God's grace. We've already done it several times this morning in prayer. We have a mediator that gives us that power to come before the presence of the living God because we don't come in our own name. We come in Christ's name. <coughs> Excuse me. But there's still coming a future judgment. There's still coming a day where God says, not only will the earth shake with my voice, but the heavens and the earth will shake with my voice. There's coming a day where God will judge again. There's coming a day when judgment will begin and when it does when the judgment that is far greater than the judgment that has been known to this point, the Scriptures tell us that judgment will begin at the house of God. And so Paul tells us to thank, with thanksgiving, grab a hold of grace, serve Him with all our hearts, with a heart of reverence and a heart of fear, with a heart that respects the holiness of God, not a heart that approaches God flippantly, not a heart that, that just 
thinks God is, is there for our benefit and, or our lucky rabbit's foot to give us things when we want it. Notice what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. This is what I just referenced. For the time is come that judgment must begin where? At the house of God. And if it first begin at us, who are believers, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? In, in, in this passage, Peter is exhorting believers unto patience and unto godly endurance in the midst of suffering. So it's not inherently in the context of what we're talking about today, but Peter makes a good point here. He highlights the danger of those who are outside the family of God and he does so by reminding us who are a part of the family of God that we are scarcely being saved ourselves. That we are, are nothing more than the recipients of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That it's nothing that we have or nothing that we are that is getting us to heaven. It's Christ alone. Don't be a Christian who mistakes the presence of God's grace for the absence of God's holiness. Don't be a Christian who thinks that we need not operate within the bounds of God's holiness because we enjoy the blessings of God's grace. Now, our last passage as we close today will remind us that the holiness of God does not play favorites. That we should remember that there's a day of reckoning coming, not just for the unrighteous, but for the righteous as well. That the threat upon the righteous is not eternal hellfire, not eternal suffering, but is in fact the loss of eternal reward. And this passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. Notice what Paul says here. He says, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. In Hebrews, we saw that God is a consuming fire. Paul is writing to believers here. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul is saying that the fire of God's judgment is going to try the works of every man to see if there's anything that has been done with eternal value, anything done in faith, anything done with spiritual worth. And if our actions on this earth abide that fearful judgment of the thrice holy God, Paul says we will receive reward. And if our actions are burned by the fearful judgment of the thrice holy God, we will suffer loss. We will be saved, it says, yet so as by fire. We'll be saved from the fires of hell, but we'll have nothing to lay at the feet of our Lord. We'll have no reward left in heaven. And ladies and gentlemen, this should be the fear of God that compels us. The fear of that there is coming a day when you will stand before God and it will be you and it will be Him and it will be what you've done on this earth. And the fire of God's wrath will judge that work. And it will be a fearful day. And if we can get into our minds just a little bit of what that day might be like, just a little bit of the terror 
that might come over us as we see the fire of God fall upon that which we've done upon this earth. We might just change a little bit of what we do on this earth. This should concern us. It it should concern us enough to love God and to love what He loves and to hate what He hates. It should concern us enough to lay aside that which is frivolous, that which is simple, that which is sinful. It should compel us to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It should lead us unto faith. We should not serve God afraid of Him, but we should definitely serve God in fear. We don't fear the eternal fires of hell. What we fear is displeasing our God. What we fear is the loss of eternal reward. So how do we do this? How is it today that you and I might live outside of the holiness of God, outside of the fear of God, spurning God's holiness? Well, certainly intentional sin. Holding ourselves above God, putting our, our, ourselves and our desires above God's Word. Certainly, if, if, if we're doing things that we know are wrong, that we know the Bible says don't do, um, we're not living in the fear of God. Thinking that we can disobey God without consequence. Loving the things of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Making those things up higher priority than God. And, and these sins take many forms. Pride, unthankfulness, anger, immodesty, lust, covetousness, drunkenness, sexual immorality of many kinds. All of these things are are ways in which as we intentionally pursue them at the expense of God's Word, we are falling short of God's holiness. We are falling short of fearing the Lord. Each one reflects some element of our lives where we've placed our love for sin above our love for God. Now, I don't know your heart. I don't have to. Because it's not my job to reform anyone in this room. It's my job to tell you what the Word of God says and the Holy Spirit does the rest. None of us is perfect. Do you strive? That's the question. Do you try? Are you living with a regard for what God's Word has said? When you do fall, when you do sin, when you do fall out of fellowship with the Lord, are you confessing that sin, getting it right with God, restoring fellowship with Him? Have you made the tough decisions to reject the pleasures of sin and to pursue Christ? Have you personally determined that you will do what is right regardless of the cost? Have you set up boundaries in your lives to keep yourselves from doing those things that displease God? To keep yourselves, as the Scriptures say, in the love of God? You know, Israel was God's chosen people. Surely they could open the ark, right? I mean, they're God's chosen people. Israel was God's chosen people. Surely God's love for His nation would overcome their curiosity for, for what's in the ark? Surely not. Those who serve God are not held to a lower standard. They're not given the free pass. They're held to a higher standard. Those who love God are expected to represent Him well. And they're expected to fear Him. And the reason is because holiness does not play favorites. I don't know what or if the Holy Spirit has placed his thumb on something in your life. Is there an area of your life today where you have uh, ignored the holiness of God? Where you have allowed uh, your thoughts, your desires, your love for something in this world to overcome what you know God would have of you? The Scriptures tell us we ought to fear God. And let's do that this morning. Let's pray together.
Father.